This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Are you ready? Revelation 21. Get them open. Revelation 21. The story arc of the Bible is J-shaped. Okay, J. It ends in similar fashion to how it began, only better (laughs) with a bigger upside. Over the recent weeks, we've been considering the major load-bearing walls that support the entirety of Scripture. And today we finish with the restoration, the end of the story. So how does it end? Well, it ends in similar fashion to the way it started. From the beginning, it was God's mission and plan to have three things. You want a summary of the Bible story? It's this, to have a populous people, lots of people living in God's place, his presence, his dwelling place, walking with him in humility, trust, and obedience. You want to summarize the entire plot line of the scriptures in 10 seconds, do it that way. To have a populous people living in God's dwelling place, walking with him in humility, trust, and obedience. I want to show you from Revelation 21 how that finishes. Okay? A populous people living in God's dwelling place, walking with him in humility, trust, and obedience, all from Revelation. It's how it started in Genesis. It's how it ends. Revelation. First, a populous people. Now, back in the fall of 2020, all the way through May of 2021, I preached through the book of Revelation, which I will do again, but don't ask me when. Revelation is not written in chronological order. It gives you a picture from the first century all the way to the final judgment and then backs the truck up and does it again from a different angle or perspective. So picture instant replay in football. When the officials are reviewing a play, what do they do? They normally bring up three, four, five different camera angles. They zoom in and out as they try to figure out what the right call is. Well, Revelation does that with human history from the first century all the way to the final judgment. So Revelation talks about the end of time, the eternal age, not just at the end of the book, but throughout it. One such occurrence is in Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That is a picture of the end. Now, the great multitude 
is a picture of God's people standing triumphantly praising God after the last judgment. And this multitude of overcomers is so large, no one can count. This is a picture of a populous people redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And this is where the story is going and how it ends. There are going to be a lot of people in heaven. It will be a populous place. A lot of people are going to get saved before Jesus comes back. And you know what? A lot of them won't look like you. They won't speak your language. You're going to think you dropped in on the United Nations. There are going to be a lot of Africans there and a lot of Chinese there and a lot of Filipinos there and Brazilians and Mexicans and Indians and Arabs and some white people too. So think about your favorite worship song. You just love hearing it sung in this room with all your brothers and sisters. If you think that's cool, just wait until you hear it sung in a hundred different languages. And you're going to learn their great worship songs too. Songs you never knew. It'll be a thousand times better when you get to hear it in Shonan or Swedish, Swahili, French, German, Japanese, Korean. Can you picture it? Do you see where history's heading? When people come to faith in Christ, God is expanding the borders of Eden. That was part of the commission God gave to Adam and Eve. Expand the borders until the earth is one ginormous Eden, my dwelling place. Well, it's going to be that. One day it's going to be that. He's expanding now. He's expanding the borders of his dwelling place. This is what he told his disciples to do in his final words to them. Make disciples of all nations. He's saying, expand the borders, my dwelling place. So God's vision for a populous people isn't just a description of one aspect to the plot line of scripture. It is also our commission. We together, as God's people, need to have a growth mindset because it reflects the growth mindset of the God who set this story in motion. A populous people. Second, living in God's dwelling place. Revelation 21, verses 15 and 16, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. 12,000 stadia is about 1,400 miles. So as a crow flies from here, That gets us to the tip of the Florida Keys, which sounds pretty good right about now. (laughs) Or out to Phoenix, Arizona, or Spokane, Washington, or 650 miles off the coast of New York City in the Atlantic Ocean somewhere. Okay, picture it. Now, what's even more impressive is that the city is 1,400 miles high. Mount Everest is six. 
1,400 miles gets us through the troposphere, stratosphere, mesosphere, thermosphere, and into the exosphere. Now we have to ask in a new earth, who's living on the top floor? (laughs) Actually, this is symbolic. Notice the dimensions make the heavenly city a cube. What's the significance of a cube? There's only one other place in the Bible where a cube is mentioned. The most holy place inside the tabernacle. What was the significance of the most holy place? We looked at this. We looked at Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, the high priest, only one day a year, following meticulous instructions, and only the high priest could go in the cube. This is where God manifested his presence among his people. Remember the curtain that served as the entryway into the most holy place had cherubim stitched on it. Remember, God placed cherubim to guard the entrance to Eden after Adam and Eve were expelled. The whole city, the heavenly Jerusalem, is a cube. All of heaven is a cube. The most holy place, the dwelling place of God, Eden restored and made even better. This is where the story is heading. A populous people living in God's dwelling place. The very dwelling place of God. And third, walking with him in humility, trust, and obedience. There is a hearing, seeing motif that occurs throughout the book of Revelation. In Revelation 5, John hears about a lion but sees a lamb. Different images for the same entity. In that case, Jesus is both lion and lamb. In Revelation 7, John hears about 144,000 but turns and sees a multitude. In that case, the totality of God's redeemed people. Something similar happens in Revelation 21. John hears about the bride but is shown a city. Two different ways of talking about the same entity. Verse 11, this city... It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So in these metaphorical terms, in this description, are we talking about a people or are we talking about a place? And the answer is both. As the heavenly Jerusalem is described in metaphorical terms, this picture is both people and place. It's both. And so we read in verse 18, the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. In other words, there is a purity, a glory, a brilliance to the city as well as the people. Twice the city is described as holy. We are holy. The pictures of God's blood-bought people Walking forever in humility, trust, 
and obedience. No more theft, no more lying, no more anxiety, no more sickness, no more insecurity, no more poverty. What a paradise awaits us. I can imagine someone asking, well, this is all well and good, this is fantastic, wonderful, but what help is this to me now? It's all so future. What help is this to me now? Some years ago, I heard a tale about two men who had been captured and thrown into a deep, dark dungeon where they were going to suffer hard labor for 10 years. That was their punishment. Just before going in, one of the men discovered that his wife and child were dead. And the other discovered that his wife and child were alive and well, and they were waiting for him. What happened? After the first couple of years, the first man just wasted away, curled up, and died. The other man endured and resisted and stayed strong and walked out a free man 10 years later to be rejoined with his wife and his child. Here's the point. They both experienced their now in completely different ways because of what they believed about their future. What do you believe about your future? Now, here's the other thing you've got to learn, and you see this in children. Parents, when you have planned a marvelous trip that your kids are just excited about, or with Christmas coming, if they're still small enough and you've not extinguished their imaginations, huh? they're, they're, they're waiting with anticipation for Christmas morning. Yes? Yes? So what fuels their hope in the present? The trip is three months away. Christmas is 20 days away. What fuels their hope in the present? What is, what is it, parents? Talking about it, right? And thinking about it, right? Yes. That fuels their hope in the present. You've got to think about heaven. You've got to think about it. Think about it often. Talk about it with each other. Talk about it with each other. Fuel each other's imaginations as to what that's going to be like. Do it. Because it will have a profound effect on how you experience your now. So there it is. God's vision at the start comes to full fruition. It's the final load-bearing wall. This is the story. You know, Christianity has taken the world by storm and it has transformed countless lives. J. Gresham Machen has pointed out the strange thing about Christianity is that it has transformed the lives of countless people, not by appealing to the human will, but by telling a story. It has changed countless lives, not by exhortation, but by narration of an event. So what does this story sound like when all these pieces are put together? These eight weeks, what does it sound like when all this is put together into one story? 
Listen to it. Once upon a time, before there was time, there was God. Eternal, all-powerful, all-glorious, self-existent, in need of nothing, completely happy, and exceedingly good. After creating a super-colossal universe, on one tiny speck within it, he formed a paradise, unique in its beauty, teeming with bounty, specially marked out as his dwelling place. This would become the home for the crown jewel of his handiwork, human beings, male and female, his image bearers. What do you call it when the indescribable, incomparable God crafts a paradise, then creates human beings made in his image to live there and enjoy it? What do you call that? A gracious and good gift. God set an immaculate table with the finest linens, cutlery, glasses, and food, and then he brought Adam and Eve into the dining room and sat them at their places to enjoy the feast. It was a beautiful beginning. Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply. They were to become a populous people living in the presence of God in the garden, expanding its borders, walking with him in humility, trust, and obedience. And as humanity lived in such a way, they would experience a harmony, vitality, and prosperity no human community has ever known. It was indeed a beautiful beginning. But it broke. The crafty serpent went to work, eroding Adam and Eve's trust in God's word to them, obscuring its clarity, impugning its authority, dismissing its integrity. He planted seeds of doubt as to whether God was truly looking out for them. They found themselves wondering if God had their best interests in mind. This swirl of deceit and mistrust became the breeding ground for that first and infamous sin. They ate the forbidden fruit, and it tasted so, so good. God had been very clear about what would happen if they disobeyed. Death. To drive the point home, Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, from the presence of God, and from life itself. They were exiled from paradise, left to grope about the earth, contending with physical pain and relational conflict, vocational frustration and spiritual darkness. And at this point, the burning question on everyone's mind is, how does this hideous set of circumstances get resolved? How do human beings reconcile their now broken relationship with God and once again enter his dwelling place? Well, the answer is not found in what human beings would do, but what God would do. He did not give up. No, he would not give up. He would reestablish the plan he had at first to see a populous people living in his presence, walking with him in humility, trust, and obedience. He appeared to Abraham, his son Isaac, Isaac's sons Jacob, to make promises, not the kind that you and I make every week, but break. No, these were promises on which he stamped the words, I will do it. Abraham would become a great nation with a spacious and bountiful land to call home. And with the passage of time, this promise came to fruition as Jacob, whom the Lord renamed Israel, became a populous nation. But 
a nation suffering under the miseries of slavery. The superpower at the time, Egypt, had made life wretched for God's people. So after 430 years of silence, he emerged into their anguish, spoke to them, and supernaturally freed them from the bondage they despised exceedingly. What do you call it when the eternal, all-powerful, all-glorious, self-existent, in need of nothing, completely happy, An exceedingly good God unilaterally frees a sinful people from their chains. A gracious and good gift. He was continuing to make good on his promises to Abraham. So what does this newly reintroduced God now do with a nation of two million people? Well, Of course, for one, give them the law. Why would one of the Lord's first acts after saving Israel from slavery be to give them the law? Fundamentally, this law revealed the character and essence of God. Remember, Israel did not know the God who had freed them from slavery. They needed to. And so God provided them with a law that would demonstrate his own essence and his being in precept form. But this law also showed them who they were to be. And in so doing, demonstrated just how far short they would fall. For embedded within the law was the assumption of their failure to keep it. The prescription for their failure would be sacrifices. Over the years, hundreds of thousands of gallons of animal blood would pour into the tabernacle and temple as a substitute would graphically bear in their place the punishment due for their lack of obedience. Forty years after giving them this law, God made good on another promise and brought his people Israel, the descendants of Abraham, into the promised land, a new Eden. What do you call it? When the eternal, all-powerful, all-glorious, self-existent, in need of nothing, completely happy and exceedingly good God, unilaterally frees a sinful people from their chains and provides them a place to call home where God will manifest his presence to them. A gracious and good gift. But as the story continues to unfold, an unpleasant pattern emerges. God gives a gracious and good gift, and his people treat it with contempt. The creator God rolled out the red carpet for Adam and Eve, but they couldn't keep themselves on the straight and narrow. As a result, they found themselves wandering the wilderness as exiles expelled from God's special place. Israel... Same story. And just like Adam and Eve, they were expelled from God's special place and found themselves as exiles in a foreign land. Humanity is stuck. Unable to clean itself up. Unable to keep itself clean. Human history is one long, tragic, and vivid testimony of its utter and complete depravity. The scriptures go to great lengths to convey to us we are worse than we think we are. How does this cycle of sin and judgment get decisively and permanently remedied? How can the fractured relationship between human beings and God heal? How can human beings once again enter the dwelling place of God? Enter the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden 
and remain faithful to the plan and will of God, even at the expense of his own life. Enter the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave behind the comfort, familiarity, and security of heaven, to embrace the annoyance, burden, and anguish of life in a fallen world, all to be a blessing to you. Enter the true and better law, who reveals in stunning colors the character and essence of God. Enter the true and better Israel, who lived out the law perfectly, thus impeccably imaged God to the world. Enter the true and better sacrifice whose blood atones for sin and makes us admissible into the dwelling place of God. Enter Jesus Christ who lived the life we should have lived and died in our place the death that we deserved. By faith and faith alone in his life, death, and resurrection, our sins are forgiven. Our fractured relationship with God is reconciled. We are clothed in his righteousness, and we both enter and become the dwelling place of God, which serves as the energizing force behind showcasing the image of Christ to each other and the world. It is the work of Christ that propels forward God's vision to see a populous people living in his dwelling place, walking with him in humility, trust, and obedience. And it is the future work of Christ that will bring this vision to a climactic conclusion. When he returns, he will usher in with flawless perfection a new heaven and new earth, the likes of which have never been seen before. He will put an end to sin, suffering, and death. There will be no more mourning, crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We will be with our God, and we will be his people, a populous people, living in his presence, walking with him in humility, trust, and obedience forever and ever. What do you call it? When the eternal, all-powerful, all-glorious, self-existent, in need of nothing, completely happy, and exceedingly good God saves sinful people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. What do you call it when this God bids them to enter his dwelling place and weep no more forever and ever? What do you call it when this God beautifies his people like a bride adorned on her wedding day? to spend eternity knowing the infinite happiness that comes from union with Jesus. What do you call that? A gracious and good gift. Let's pray. What an amazing story this is, God. And it all starts with you. Just as the most magnificent natural wonder can leave us breathless, just one glimpse of you overwhelms us with astonishment. There is no one more powerful, no one wiser, no one more knowledgeable, no one more merciful and gracious than you. That you would create what you have created and then make room for us not just to exist in this universe but be given a place of honor is mind-boggling. Who are we that you would treat us as royalty? And it would have been understandable for you to give up 
when we turned our backs on you. But what heightens our wonder is your relentless pursuit of rebels. You didn't give up. You didn't throw in the towel. You didn't start over. You made a way for what we broke to be restored in marvelous beauty. It's an amazing story. And God, may we forever be transfixed with the hero of this story, Jesus Christ, who is the true and better Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the true and better law, Israel, and sacrifice, whose perfect life and substitutionary death wraps us in his righteousness so you can look upon us with favor, a favor that will reach a climax when you welcome us into your dwelling place where we will know what it is to be infinitely happy. We worship you now to the glory of Jesus' mighty name. Amen.